everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. We're here on the third and final rest day of the 2022 Tour de France. I'm with Andrew Vance from the Choose the Hard Way podcast. Andrew, Andrew, do you want to say a quick word about your podcast before we get into the tour? Yeah, for sure, Spencer. On my podcast, Choose the Hard Way, my guests share stories about how hard things build stronger, more resilient people. They come from many different backgrounds, sports, tech, the arts, business, the military. And if you enjoy doing hard things and the lessons you learn from doing that, you'll love the stories of my guests. So come check us out. You can find us at choosethehardway.com and at hardwaypod on social. It's a great podcast. Um, I was on it. There's been a lot more accomplished people than me on it. Um, if you like the Rich Roll podcast, that type of you know single interview deep dive, you'll you'll love Andrew's podcast. And Andrew, I just wanted to to levy this question at you. Last episode we recorded was done from Lance Armstrong's office. I actually had to kick him out. He came in. He had a very important meeting to do. We were in the middle of recording. He couldn't come in. Graciously allowed us to stay. It, a rival podcaster is this similar to are we the Jan Ulrich to the Lance Armstrong now is he is he the unwritten rules of of podcasting now where he's being overly gracious waiting for us letting us record from his office is are these just mind games are we succumbing to the same trap that that Ulrich did I'm now concerned I think he just recognizes greatness when he sees it and he seated the studio to you Spencer yeah, it's it's working though. The mind games are now are now cooking. What what did he have going? Um, and just one thing I to tie this back to the actual race. I don't know if you noticed this in yesterday's stage, but Yonis um, Vingegaard goes down, crashes. The race leader he has to chase pretty hard to catch back on. Like he had to drop his team to get back on. Like he seemed really panicked, and the pace did not come off at the front. Um, you know, back when Lance was re- leading the race, that probably wouldn't have happened. Um, even if one of Lance's rivals would have crashed, he probably would have waited for him. You know, I don't know, like, I kind of like it without the rules, but did you notice that? Did that strike you as like very different or very odd? This is Tour de France 2.0, just part of the new cycling. No respect, no rules, full gas, drill it. Do you, do you like it? Yeah, I do. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a fan too. And I think a lot of those these rules that people think are like quote unquote rules. You know, if you go back and watch those early Lance years, like there was one where he waited for Ulrich. Um, yeah, it was, it was one of the pre 2003 ones um, when Lance crashed and the favor was repaid, but he was like waiting for Ulrich when he was really, it's kind of like us, you know, he's really far ahead of us doing these gestures. And then Ulrich's like, Oh wow, I owe this guy one. And then when Ulrich can actually win the race in 2003, he sits up and waits for him. And doesn't win the tour. Um, it, a lot of that, I think, was just invented during Armstrong's seven-year reign, where he really, outside of 2003, was never really in risk of losing any of those races. Like a lot of it just seemed like him investing in future relationships that might help, which they did in 2003. So yeah, it is nice to. See, I, I actually like to see a lot of these like rules kind of you know, torn down, so to speak. And we saw. You know, we saw Pogacar held up when he was in the yellow jersey. This was back in the early stages, and people were attacking at the front while he was off the back. So it is. It's Tour de France 2.0. It's complete madness out there. I'm loving it. You know, as we – and it's speaking of madness, Jumbo Visma, terrible day yesterday. They lost two riders, Stephen Kreuzwick, Primoz Roglic. Tej Benut went down really hard. Jonas Vingegaard also went down hard. 
Benute didn't look okay. I'm curious to see what we hear on the rest day and how what he looks like tomorrow. But they're basically down to, you know, if you count Wout, four support riders plus Jonas, how do you think they're going to fare in this coming week? Not very well, Spencer. I think this is where we see the Death Star, the Enios super ship continue to rise. Although we see lots of schisms within that team as well. Going back to that topic of respect and its intersection with where is Yumbo Visma at in this final week and what's going to happen. Another thing that struck me yesterday, and this might just be France TV and the feed and the, the way that they cut it, which is, you know, we've talked about this. It doesn't always make a ton of sense. Usually at a moment of peak drama amongst the actual animators of the race, the most important writers, that's typically when they cut away to a French French writer like getting yeah. dropped off the back this has of the been really bad the last few days. <laughs> it's, it's so bad. It's so bad. But something happened when Kreiswick went down. They cut back, and Wout was looking at him like he was a double big gulp cup that had been thrown on the ground, and it's just like talking into his radio. Doesn't Do I have to check wait for this guy. Yeah. Oh my god. Doesn't check on him, and you know it was a pretty severe crash. He left the race in an ambulance, and then Wout just gives him one more glance, talks in the radio, and then takes off. Of course, you know, what space Wout's head was in yesterday is something else I'd love to talk about after taking that interesting early flyer and getting called back and looking like a bit of a petulant teenager as he sat up and waited. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in just what you just said right there. He did do one thing, I think, which was useful. I, I bet Kreuzwick crashes. He's like, oh, my God, I can't believe this guy crashed. What's crashing? Why would you crash your bike? Um, he probably asked on the radio, what am I supposed to do? Should I wait for him? But he probably also told everyone that Kreuzwick crashed, which Kreuzwick was too injured. I, yeah, I, I had a compound fracture of my collarbone. It looked like a similar injury for Kreuzwick. You really can't do anything. So that's helpful to like let the team know what's going on. Um, but yeah, I bet he did also be like, do I really have to wait for this guy? Like, what's the plan here? I kind of want to win this stage, but to go back, but then we saw what was that six K's later, the yellow Jersey goes down and his teammate, Benu, both, both of them, his teammates, and he, he's not even there. He doesn't even wait. He just, he's just at the front. He's like, screw these guys. I'm done waiting for these crash guys. Like I'm just trying to win the stage. That was really crazy. I thought, and then Jonas is chasing back on without the help of his teammate who's up in the front for the second straight day. This happened yesterday, too, after Wout launched Pogacar's attack, I guess on accident. But, you know, what's weird about that early breakaway is it probably cost him the stage. You know, he loses the stage by, you know, half a wheel. Well, maybe if he wouldn't have spent the first hour off the front hammering, he might have had a little bit more energy. Did he? I don't understand what he was thinking there. Did he? Why would anyone work with Wout Van Aert in a breakaway? That makes no sense whatsoever. Obviously, his director made the right call to have him come back, so at least he had a chance to win and could help people, even though he didn't really help anybody. I mean, what do you think went on there? Like, what's his thought process on that? You're asking me as if that made any sense. I have no idea. I just I didn't understand why he was off the front at the beginning of the stage to begin with. That just made no sense to me. It seemed like another unnecessary energy expenditure and going back to what we've discussed in previous episodes about Tour de France 1.0 and Tour de France 2.0 and really just the constant melee we've seen every day everyone being all in trying to win stages which is making for spectacular viewing but 
it just doesn't feel like any team has tremendous confidence in their ability to win the overall. And I just keep thinking about that first week while animating the race, just really showing us what he could do, which was interesting to watch, taking the yellow, taking stage wins. But, you know, now that they're a few men down, gosh, the energy expenditure of that and what they probably need wow to do in the next few days. How does that look now, Spencer? Yeah. And just to to say one thing, maybe in Wout's defense is, you know, I may be reverse engineering an excuse here, but by getting in the breakaway, he de-incentivized anyone else from getting in the breakaway because what's the point if Wout's in it? And so he essentially killed the breakaway by being in the breakaway. He could drop back then to the Peloton knowing that it would come down to a bunch sprint and his team wouldn't have to work to make it a bunch sprint and he might have a chance of winning. So that would be perhaps the overly kind view of maybe like a big brain strategy there. But, you know, even uh, on JB, I don't know you listen to this podcast, probably JB squared with Johan Bruniel, you know, he had a good point of like, what is Wout doing even sprinting? Like that's a, like he almost went down in that sprint. He tangled bars with Mads Pedersen. If Wout goes down, they're left with very few helpers. At least they have Wout now. You know, if, if they can get him to stop going in these breakaways, you know, I'm looking at tomorrow's mount stage. He can definitely stay with Jonas probably throughout the entire thing. 17, stage 17 on Wednesday, you can probably get through, get with them to the base of the final climb. Same thing, maybe same thing with Thursday. So Yumbo, at least in theory, has this like, you know, this kind of play it all card with Wout, who even though they're now depleted, they still have a really, really strong domestique who can help Jonas if he can stop going in breakaways and trying to win stages. That's probably the big if. You know, UAE is also really depleted, um, but this helps them a lot. You have to think, right? Because they didn't really, Pogacar was really struggling to put Vinegard in trouble. I mean, we saw him attacking early on stage 14 on Saturday. It looked cool, but you start to wonder like, well, what was, what? how was that going to play out? You're going to get in the breakaway and who's going to work with you because you're going to get chased all day and you're probably not going to stay away. We saw him attacking quite a bit yesterday. You know, but now that Yumbo's depleted and they're in some higher mountains in the Pyrenees this coming week, you know, those attacks could actually work. You know, it's going to be a lot harder for Jonas. The question I would levy back at you is, does any of this matter? Like, Jonas looks incredible. You know, is, is he, is anyone even going to be able to drop him in the mountains? Yeah, Jonas is definitely going to get dropped in the mountains. I think that he's about to implode. And also just thinking about this wout issue some more. I feel like there's an there's a moral dimension. I think even as we're talking about it, it sounds like we're wagging our fingers. I'm actually not because I think that Wout has made this race really fun to watch. And I think oh yeah, this in, would be terrible if he was actually behaving like yeah. I don't want I don't want Wout to behave. This is great. It's making yeah. it exciting. Like what an exciting narrative. It's unexpected. This is the the pulp fiction, uh, you know, anti confluential nonlinear narrative of <laughs> of Tour de France um races so i've just i've really enjoyed watching him i love watching him uh, just as a competitor as a bike racer he's got the eye of the tiger he's got the thrill of the fight he's bringing it to us so i'm really enjoying watching it i'm really glad he did what he did in the first week he shook the snow globe he's making this an interesting race a lot of unexpected things have happened he's ushered in in part he's been one of the riders who's ushered in this tour de france 2.0 era now more arrow uh, uh stiff but compliant 
And, you know, what happens on Yumbo? I'm not sure I really care. I don't care if they win the yellow jersey because I'm getting to watch this incredible race and the lack of predictability is just making it more fun to watch than almost any Tour de France I've ever watched. I think the worst thing that could happen is if I don't think that there's any chance this could happen with the the status of the different teams with COVID, with what we're seeing from the different competitors. But if this just became really predictable, the final time trial was a fait accompli, there was no chance of the lead changing hands. And then the Champs-Élysées stage was just a processional. That would be, man, that would be really boring. I, but I don't think that's, I don't think that's going to happen. Do you? No, we're, it's almost like a handicapper came through yesterday and was like, all right, Jonas, you look pretty strong. You have a strong team. We're plucking out two domestiques and we're going to give a third one a concussion. Go. You know, it's like he's going to have to, it's just going to be a man on man fight between him, Pagachar, and I guess Thomas. You say Thomas like has the sky train. It's kind of been taught. Like we saw the finish on Mont Mend on Saturday where. I mean, Thomas is clearly the strongest rider on that team. Adam Yates is there when he can be there. He did a little bit of work for him, but I think Thomas is going to be by himself. You know, if Thomas is winning this race, it's going to be on his own in the Pyrenees. Pitcock is is kind of a mini wout. Like, you're not quite sure what's going on here. I guess it's big for him to get a top 10. I think I said a few podcasts ago to win a Grand Tour, you have to not win a Grand Tour. Like, you have to ride it competitively and not win. Literally everyone who's ever won a Grand Tour, except the first humans to ever do Grand Tours, that's the progression. So he's probably focused on that. You know, I don't know how strong their team is outside of those two guys. Um, And I guess we could talk about the Heat for a second. It seems like the Heat has really crushed any team support. We saw Yumbo couldn't even pace Vindegaard back onto the Peloton yesterday. I I haven't seen anything like that maybe ever. I mean, did you notice that, that they were just so gassed they couldn't even pace their team leader back on? Yeah, it was 102 degrees. I'm not surprised. I've done some research also into heat adaptation. People listening who have done a lot of training and racing, you're probably aware that it takes about two weeks to become acclimated to heat. I just also want to note that my mother asked me not to use the word acclimatize because it's more complex has more syllables and means the same thing as acclimate to heat. So when I've used it in the, when I've used acclimatize in the past, she said, why are you doing that? That's a bit overly fancy. You can just say acclimate. I do want to note that both usages are correct. Mom, you know that I'm right. Uh, but acclimate is simple and simpler is usually better. But, uh, one of the things that I was researching yesterday with what was going on with the heat was taking a look into heat adaptation protocols. Typically, it takes about two weeks of heat exposure, daily heat exposure for riders to become heat adapted. We also know that in the weeks leading up to the tour, riders are often in altitude camps and then they're tapering probably in that final week and doing some probably some sharp efforts in the middle of the week, but they want to come in ready to rip. And I know actually, like I was trying to find this article because I know that Caleb Ewan and Lotto specifically have worked with a coach who's one of the people on the cutting edge of heat adaptation. I unfortunately couldn't find the specific article I was recalling. Um, But this is something you can prepare for. And they knew they were going to go through the Massif Central and that they likely would have faced this level of heat. 
So what do you think, Spencer, when I mean, also this, I want to note, this is really easy for me to say, Spencer and I grew up in the Midwest, both going out and doing training rides and racing and temperatures over a hundred degrees with a hundred percent humidity. We like some of you actually understand what it feels like to go out and do this. It's freaking absolutely miserable, especially when you stick it in the middle of the tour de France. But are we seeing a lack of preparation here on the part of some of these riders, Spencer and teams? Well, I mean, it gets a little complicated. It's not like, first of all, I guess, I guess in theory, maybe it works. I've never, ever felt good in the heat, regardless of if I'm in heat before or not in heat before, you know, it's like, there was like years where I didn't have AC and it'd be really hot in my house before Tulsa tough. And I guess I performed well at Tulsa tough. So maybe that's a data point, um, which is hot, which is very hot, potentially hotter than Kansas, if that's possible. Um, the thing that's tricky is, so think about heat acclimation before this race, but you go to Denmark and it's 55 degrees in the opening time trial. And then it's like 106 in Paris tomorrow. So tomorrow's stage is going to be hot for the, for the riders. Wednesday is like high of 55. So, you know, that gets really tricky. You know, I, I think you can get too cute trying to, you know, if you're going to the Tokyo Olympics, like last year, and you know, it's going to be hot and humid, you're not racing in any other conditions. It's very, I think the winner of the women's race specifically did a lot of heat, um, like training in the heat, a lot of sauna time, clearly helped her. Uh, She was very strong when everyone else was crumbling. You know, with the tour, the tour goes to so many different climates. I think you could actually get too cute with it and you don't want to overly prepare for a single temperature because you're seeing in this week, they're going to race in temperatures that are 50 degrees Fahrenheit separate from each other. That's one of the things I couldn't find in the research and looking at meta-analyses. I am curious. If you know the answer, please hit us up on Twitter. Spencer is at BTP Cycling. I'm at Vance and at Hardway Pod. I don't know. Once you're heat adapted, to your point, Spencer, of the start in Denmark, the relatively cool temperatures then, and now being almost twice as hot as when the race started, I don't know how long you hang on to those heat adaptations And you're right. This is a really complex differential equation. And if you start getting cute with some of the variables, I don't know, I suppose you could, I've, maybe this has been done actually. Does anyone stick their riders in a portable sauna along the route? You know, uh, I I think they're in the sauna all day. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You're right. But I'm like, I don't know. After the stage in Denmark, did, uh, Enios have the riders get in a sauna? That honestly wouldn't be a bad idea though. I mean, getting access to a sauna could be tough, but Yeah. yeah, that would be a good idea. Yeah. Or again, I'd have to look more deeply at the literature, but there, I'm sure there's a metabolic cost to going and sitting in a sauna and getting dehydrated, but um, yeah, I mean, what we saw yesterday was people in the race coming apart at the seams. same thing the day before. And going back to my point about Vineyard and why I think we might see an implosion there, it might be an implosion or something that I keep thinking about. And I've read about how the ASO has been watering the roads and allegedly 10,000 gallons, I believe, of water have been have been used to cool the roads off and keep the tar from melting. They've pushed back and said, no, it was only 350 gallons. I, that's a really low number. I don't believe that. That's but, like my, that's my bathtub. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's just like a typical <laughs> shower here in Hope. No yeah. 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 I'm on well water, but I keep thinking about Lance and Beloki actually 
I don't remember which year that was in the tour, but you'll recall they were descending. The tar was melted on an alpine descent. Beloki's wheel hit the tar and he had a horrific crash. And that's when Lance famously went off-road and cut the switchback. And even though he cut the course, they did allow him to stay in the race. Yeah, I, I, God, they re- that would have that would have been amazing if they disqualified him for that. I'm, it would have in twenty twenty two. They would. He definitely would have. <laughs> yeah, the UCI would be like, you're out. The, the, actually, funny you bring that up. So that was two thousand three. That was a descent in the gap um, at the base of the Pyrenees, which is where we are now. It's always hot here. Um, that was probably the last extreme extreme heat wave. If you were in Europe in two thousand three, right. you remember this vividly. Like. Probably similar temperatures we're seeing in Paris today and tomorrow we were seeing back then. You know, that was a really taxing tour, too. If you remember, that was the best tour of those seven tours because Lance almost lost it because he was just never good. He got super dehydrated in the time trial, the first time trial. Like if it's that famous picture with the salty lips. I heard Ulrich was warming up in an air-conditioned uh, bike shop that they had scouted months before and Lance was outside warming up and that contributed to the dehydration. You know, it, pro- it produced a great tour, but yeah, these roads, especially in the region they are now, like, and in the Pyrenees, they're, they're not good roads. It's not like the Alps where the roads are like carpets. It's very, it's like chip seal, I guess is what we would call it. And the tar kind of melts. The only thing, uh, do you, so you're from Missouri, Kansas slash Missouri area. What do you do when it's really hot? Like, how do you ride when it's very hot? What do you do? What's the secret here? Typically, I would just go outside and ride. What would you? Is there some secret that would I don't you know maybe, about? Maybe shift it to like not the hardest part of the hottest part. Oh of the yeah, day? yeah. That's I mean, me the you know, <laughs> solution here. Well, I mean, yeah. If yeah, if you have that option, had I not been mowing lawns for ten hours before I went on my bike ride, typically, yeah, you could go ride earlier in the day. But yeah, I mean, I know that that's come up. Hey, why don't we move this to earlier in the day? And I, the gating factor here has to be terrestrial television. And which is, is wild because some people are actually watching this race on a television channel, which you kind of forget about if you're streaming it and are incredibly self-absorbed. Like I sometimes am when I'm watching the tour. Uh, But yeah, like they have to consider TV rights around the world, right? Yeah, I mean, they could probably do it for, we're talking, what, three stages of extreme, extreme heat. They could probably just start it at 8 a.m. and we would all watch it on a delay and it all be fine. Um, but yeah, I can understand. They probably have contracts in place. They don't want to do it. And it's the tour. It's le tour. We can't change it for anything. We didn't even, I mean, it's only been changed for the world wars. We're not changing it for some pesky heat. But yeah, it is like it's kind of odd. We had the climate protesters were back. I was glad to see them back. I thought we needed them. It was very hot. We need the climate protesters. But they're almost in like uh it's almost like a little play with the tour now where it's like, well, we'll come out and sit on the road on stages that don't really have any consequence and like we won't really disrupt the stage. It's like a funny back and forth going on with the tour and the cl- these climate protesters. I actually I I didn't like them at first and now they've won me over and now I'm excited to see what the next act is. Again, because of the France TV feed and the cuts, the director of the master feed um, or the overall feed is calling, it's really difficult to understand from a continuity perspective what's happening. I did not see any kilometer markers in any of the footage with the climate protesters. Yeah, but it, they- it, it looked like that. And from what they were saying on 
the stream. It looked like that might have caused the crash where Yumbo lost Kreuzwick. Could be. It would make it kind of the scenery looked similar. Um, I guess that's the risk if you're one of these, if you're like, you know, if, if you're the Andrew Vance of these protesters and you're mapping out like the communication strategy and how it's going to be received, like maybe almost murdering Lewis Hamilton uh, by having him run over you and then flip right into his face and decapitate him live on television is a bad idea from a PR standpoint. Like also just just continually causing problems at the Tour de France and then everyone's kind of annoyed with you and you're just taking your frustration out on innocent people. Maybe not the best strategy, um, but also the tour, the tour is unbelievably stupid. Never underestimate the tours to cause its own problems. So these climate protesters are, are a mere flea on our back. Um, I, I'm confident in the tour's ability to cause more, more chaos than these protesters over the coming days. Spencer, I had a question for you about this intersection of the tour and these extreme temperatures. I'm wondering if you could explain to me what the benefit might be in extreme heat of having a very thick beard. Oh my God. That, it's actually funny you bring that up. That, I think that's like a legitimate, I cannot believe Quinn Simmons, I guess Simon, Simon Geshka, probably Simon Geshka also has a big beard. They must be really hot. I actually can't believe they have those beards. Like it has to be causing them a lot of discomfort. Um, they're both riding very well. I don't know. I mean, I mean, you, you're sporting a bit of a beard now. If you were racing at 104 degree temps, would you shave it or would you hold strong? I would absolutely shave it. I've I don't know if you've ever had a beard of the magnitude of a Geshka or Simmons. Have you? No. No, yeah. it looks unbelievably hard to run. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've had some larger beards before. I can't imagine in that kind of heat what that feels like and it seems like it would be a significant performance disadvantage. Yet there they are. They're like they're doing quite well in the race and I noticed that Simmons and his father actually have semi-matching beards. So there's a deep level of commitment to the beard uh for these two and you know potentially some deeper meaning there that we can't possibly understand <laughs> but i like I, I just don't get it i also when i was digging around specialized has you know they have their own wind tunnel and they've done a lot of testing on pretty much everything but they've done shave legs versus hairy legs they've done beard versus no beard and they also have done some wind tunnel testing related to various hairstyles, longer hair, ponytail, braided ponytail. And the beard apparently does not come with the Watts penalty, which I find to be really I find hard, that hard to believe. Un right? Literally unbelievable since it's quite literally the first thing greeting the wind. Well, I, I mean, you know, I think it's probably the leading edge of your helmet i would think but like yes i don't know maybe the beard is in the trailing aspect of of maybe the... you know potentially they mean like you know we also like have to like it's not like this is not scientific data from specialized they just say stuff and we have to accept it maybe they mean like when you have our new helmet on our new tt helmet on with the buff the beard is not give you a penalty you know because those helmets are so big those tt helmets maybe they could shield your face from the air 
on it with a road helmet, man, I don't know, especially when they're sitting more upright on those road bikes. That yeah. seems quite hard to believe. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head here. This is, in fact, it's called marketing, right? They have their own <laughs> wind tunnel and like they've got us talking about it. Nonetheless, and this was all pre-specialized, somehow convincing the world's best cyclists to wear extended turtlenecks over their ears and, and necks. Uh, so perhaps they have new data, but they did have data from a limited test. It was N of one, so we should never really, you know, that's that's not a very scientific conclusion. But anecdotally, from a small sample size, there was a significant watt uh, wattage challenge from having long hair. And again, with Simmons, Simmons, you're right. Like, I actually, I want to talk about Simmons. I think, as you've said, maybe doesn't uh, seem like someone you'd want to grab a beer with, but it's undeniable that Simmons is going to have a really big future. I'm incredibly impressed with how he's riding in this tour. Um, and, you know, that he's doing it with this thick beard and hair that's probably causing at least five watts of damage to his overall performance, you know that's for him to talk to his team about i think but he's riding very well yeah the guy is a stud um it's a funny story about quinn simmons if i i like saw his dad i was in iron in durango for the iron horse race and he's so american that i thought it was a bit like he was like yippee and like yippee like on his bike during a race i thought it was like a joke you're like oh no this man is just passionate American and you can see him and Quinn after stages like um really holding the loud American stereotype just keeping burning that candle and keeping it alive they're like like literally like yippee and yippee and yawing on the finish line after stages it's uh quite a sight to behold but the guy is a stud I mean I think he's what is he 21 years old he's one of the youngest riders in this race Seems to be in every breakaway. He was key to delivering Mads Pedersen to the win on stage. What that been like stage fourteen? I think. Yeah, and you know, I think you're really good when you can get Europeans to talk about you. And I think a lot of like Europeans in the sport are, you know, because if you're American and you're decent, halfway decent, you're going to get a lot of press time, like especially on Velo News and cycling tips. If you can get groups outside of that to be like wow this guy's really good and then there's an odd inverse effect where the the better you are and the more accepted you are in like real cycling like european cycling the less you get talked about in u.s journalism which is like a whole other topic for another day but he's he's reached to that point i mean the guy is a legitimate budding superstar and i think it's hard for u.s media to know exactly how to talk about him but i mean when you see him just even the shots behind him when he's in those breakaways, like he is an undeniably powerful pedal stroke. I'm just, I'm blown away every day with what he's able to do. Yeah. And if people listening aren't familiar with Simmons's Palmares in 2019, he was the junior road world champion. It was a really impressive ride uh, as I guess world championship rides typically are, but I mean, he really laid it down. <laughs> it was, you could just tell this guy had a big future and Historically, we've seen junior riders, particularly from the United States, who've showed similar promise early on. A lot of them just wash out 
they can't handle the European lifestyle, which is not a glamorous one. And just living out of a suitcase with a few belongings, going from hotel to hotel, high altitude camp to high altitude camp. Simmons seems perfectly suited for this lifestyle. He doesn't seem yeah. to be. <laughs> right? I have a, you know, there's a few key points here. It's like Quinn didn't come up through the U.S. cycling system. So that tends to, you tend to see a lot of people like the darlings of that would be like Taylor Finney or something. Obviously, he was so talented, it didn't really matter. He would have been successful no matter what. But Quinn is just like, he's just out there in Durango, like hiking and cross-country skiing as a kid. And it's like, well, I think I'll ride. I think I'm pretty good. And then he went over and won Worlds. And the key thing, I think, with Quinn is he skipped all the bad stuff that you're talking about. Like, he never did U23s, which is if you're a talented American junior, you go join a low-level French pro team. It's like a low-level slash high-level amateur situation. You're maybe making like a $15,000 year stipend. You're living in a really crappy place. Your, your, your coaches probably aren't the best. You know, it's just like ride hard. And then when you're tired, ride hard more. And the races are really hard. You know, these are not easy races. It's not like you're dominating, even if you're really talented. And that can tend to grind you down, especially if you're American and you're not from there and you miss home and you're racing against a bunch of people who are at home. The key thing with Quinn is he was so good, he could skip all that. He went from juniors to making probably six figures. You know, at 18, 19, he probably got a really nice apartment somewhere in the south of France or in Spain. And it's much easier for him. He just got to skip all the noise and all the mess and go straight to the world tour, which I think is really helpful. I mean, if you're talented enough to do it, I would not, re- I would never recommend anyone racing U23s if they could skip it because. There's a ton of doping. It's it's really like just the Wild West. You, a lot of people get lost along that path in the U23 ranks. And the key thing with Quinn is he was good enough. He didn't have to deal with any of that. Yeah, and we saw him yesterday, 33 miles from the finish when Trek really started to pick up the pace. You know, as he has been on many stages, he was there drilling it, helping them to really lay it down. And that was the moment, of course, when Ewan went out the back and, uh, you know, and then Mods had another shot at the finish. Which was really impressive. I mean, he opened that yeah. up from 250 kilometers out. I was actually watching that stage with George Hincapie, who a known pretty, pretty decent rider himself. And he was like jaw dropped at where that sprint was coming from. He didn't think that he was going to be able to hold that all the way to the line. Yeah. Yeah. So Quinn... He's having a pretty good tour. Yeah. I mean, definitely the, and I, in the lead story on Velenus yesterday, was it about Quinn Simmons? No, it was about a fist fight between high level amateur racers at a Boise Twilight Criterium. So just to show you what Quinn is up against as far as getting recognition in the US. Um, yeah. Al- although, I mean, it, I know that you probably haven't been watching the Peacock feed. I haven't watched much of it, but they have, you know, They've handed off the TJ Van Garderen behind the scenes diary videos, which I guess the the continuity here is the torch was passed from TJ to Taylor Finney has now been passed to Quint Simmons because they're all they're always focusing on that that uh, you know who who's the big American name in the race storyline and turning it into television. And yeah, I don't know if I don't want to like speak out of turn here, but just a quick thing about TJ that I think will be enlightening to perhaps why Americans tend to 
I mean, you hate to say TJ underperformed because I think he got fourth at the tour, but yeah, um, you know, he settled down in Aspen, Colorado. I think his wife's family is from there. So I can understand. I live next door to my wife's family. I can understand why that's appealing. But then he would do his like off-season training in Aspen. If you've ever been to Aspen, that's very cold, incredibly cold. Um, his coach was telling me it was like quite difficult to do their December training camps because you're in the snow all the time. And like that type of, there tends to be a bit of like, I'm painting with a very broad brush here, but like home, home body-esque-ness with American cyclists, especially once they have families, which I think we can understand. I mean, that's crazy to want to be away from your family. But, you know, I was talking to Larry Warbus recently who just lives in, he says he's in the U.S. maybe one or two weeks a year, you know, and he just lives in France all the time and he's a full-time French resident. It, there seems to be an, an aversion to doing that for Americans. The fact that, you know, TJ was making millions and millions of euros a year. At the time he was doing this, he probably could have lived a very nice life in France or even just like get a house in Tucson, maybe. So it's warm when you're training. But this, you know, once you reach a, reach a certain age that you just kind of hunker down and you only go to Europe to race, you know, that that's another thing that I think really penalizes American riders where if you're not willing to just fully embrace the European lifestyle and basically become a resident of a foreign country, it can be really hard, you know, because TJ's results did not get better when he moved to Aspen full time and started doing his training camps there. Yeah, I, I don't know why, but I'm thinking about this difference between Tour 1.0 and Tour 2.0 that we keep talking about. And one of the things that jumped out at me in the last couple of days is I don't know if you saw this interview, but Pidcock said that Pagachar had talked to him or Enios during the race, trying to form an alliance against Yumbo. And then Pidcock just turned around and dimed him out to the press, which I don't think we ever would. I was like, what are you doing, Tom? I mean, yeah, yeah I, I'm not a fan of Omerta. Obviously, it created a pervasive doping culture. It's bad. Equally, like, what are you doing, Tom? Like, why are you diming out Tade? I'm glad this is like brings us into our final section, I think, of, you know, how does someone that not that is not Jonas Vindegaard win this tour, especially as we go into these like the Pyrenees are like they're wild mountains. Um, I heard the word anthropolized or something. I'd never heard that word before on Twitter to describe the Alps where like humans have overtaken the Alps. But the Pyrenees remain wild and like there's like a mystery and a mystique about them and it's just a very difficult place to control both in like a civilization sense. And then also in a cycling sense, these are just crazy mountains that the grades are not consistent. Everything's banana. Like things tend to be bananas there. And like, if you're Pogacar, if you're Garrett Thomas, if you're Roman Bardet, you need an alliance. Because as I said the other day, when Pogacar was attacking at the beginning of the stage and the mend, well, this is pointless because if you just get into a break by yourself, Enios and Yumbo and DSM are going to nail you back. You're not going to get to go anywhere. But if you're up there with Garrett Thomas or Adam Yates and Roman Bardet and Nairo Quintana, Yumbo cannot pull you back. You guys have, we saw this on stage, what was that, stage 16 of the 2016 Vuelta, stage 17 maybe, where that happened and Chris Froome lost the race because he couldn't control it. And that's clearly what Pogacha was trying to do, form an alliance with Enios to put Yumbo under pressure, 
I could not believe that Peacock didn't turn around and dimed him out. That was so strange to me. I mean, do you think that's, is that just an experience, a bit of naive, naive, like being naive, or is there like something else? Is he working on some other level we can't even see at the moment? I think that he's fully focused on the Tom Pidcock program. He's similar to Wout. I think he's doing his thing, and I don't, I don't think that he's thinking a whole lot about what the optics are of his actions. <laughs> it's kind of the, uh, <laughs> like this is a funny story. I'll just share this. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, the guy you guys won't believe what know, happened. Yeah, you know, again, a lot seems to have changed with Enios. There, much has been made of the fact that they're having their riders do ice baths following the race uh, for recovery this is a protocol that's been used in professional ball sports you know for over 20 years so the fact that it hasn't been done in cycling or we haven't had visibility into that that just strikes me as kind of weird but Enios has started doing it they have their riders and ice baths outside of the team bus Tom finished the stage the other day and jumped in a fountain which you know like that's kind of cool they were that hot that he found the nearest fountain and just jumped into it uh choosing to forego i guess like the extra couple hundred yards to maybe get to (laughs) an ice bath at the team bus but i think that's kind of illustrative of overall what's going on there maybe i would i also wanted to say in terms of what's going to happen here in the pyrenees and spencer thanks for calling out earlier i erroneously stated that that Beloki crash had happened in the alps so thanks for correcting me so as we think about what's going to go down in the pyrenees Something with Pagachar that is not often talked about, you know, in the off season, he was actually racing cyclocross and like a lot of this new generation of riders and actually Sagan as well. Sagan, part of why he's such a phenomenal uh, bike handler is because of his background racing in off-road disciplines. I mean, we even saw him race cross-country mountain bike at the Olympics in Brazil. And I think with Pitcock with Wout, with MVDP, and I also think potentially with Tade, part of the advantage there is, as they say in Belgium, he's a really fantastic bike driver, which is how they refer to bike handling and cyclocross. And he also, another aspect that's not often talked about, you know, with Pitcock the other day with the descent, for example, which has really taken off and almost gone viral, you know, yes, it is his ability to drive the bike it's also the cyclocross mentality on a course of squeezing every advantage you can and grabbing seconds wherever you can and really maximizing the momentum you can carry through any terrain. So I think that's one of the areas where Tade potentially has some edge, I think, and where he might stay upright in some situations that might arise in the next couple of days that are going to be tricky where a Thomas, for example, who we've seen have this propensity for being a bit more in the Roglic arena in terms of his relationship with the tarmac, might be at less, uh, you know, might not be as advantage. What do you think we're going to see happen? Yeah, I wish I would have like researched this. My gut is that if Thomas doesn't crash in the first 10 days of a Grand Tour, he's actually very unlikely to crash after that. I could be wrong. I might be missing some famous late grand tour crashes for thomas you know i I actually think thomas has got this podium locked down um don't take that to the bank with any money that you don't want to lose but he looks solid to me i don't think he can pass him we saw it the mend finish was the perfect encapsulation of where this tour stands where 
Tade just lifts the pace slightly and Jonas is on his wheel and they immediately drop everyone else. Um, and they went up that climb fast. I, th- I heard they tied Pantani's record. I couldn't quite verify that. One source told me Pantani was five seconds faster. Another source told me that they tied his record. That's fast. That's faster than Armstrong, Contador, uh, all of those greats have ever ridden it. So these guys are seriously flying. The thing is with Jonas, I mean, your theory is that he's going to fall apart. You know, we've never seen him fall apart. So we don't have any evidence that that's happening. He did hit the ground really hard yesterday. Um, I don't know if you saw, like, he didn't have road rash, but a lot of times, which is good. I mean, it's hard to recover from road rash. If he had road rash, he probably can't win this race. Extensive road rash. But when you don't have road rash, the energy went somewhere else. You know, and his jersey was, like, scuffed up. Like, he hit the ground really, really hard. Like, a sack of potatoes is, is kind of how I describe it. You know, that can have effects. You actually don't see riders who hit the ground win the Grand Tours that much. Um, I think Tade technically hit the ground or he fell earlier. Actually, he he hit the ground. Kind of seemed like he, I don't know, it was like a pileup. He like landed on other riders. Who knows how hurt he was. I mean, maybe, maybe not. Those low speed wrecks can hurt. I mean, actually, yeah, it was one of those. They're on like a five lane road and he was in the middle. We didn't quite see what happened. We don't know if he landed on someone else or not. So you might be right, Spencer. It, it did seem like a different magnitude of ground impact. And then uh, obviously he's, he's had time to recover since then. But Jonas, I mean, God, we'll see. Yeah, I wouldn't be shocked. I wouldn't be shocked if you're correct and he does struggle because of that crash. You know, if they get into the Pyrenees and stuff gets tough. I wouldn't, I mean, the finishes on Wednesday and Thursday are unbelievably hard. Um, like two of the hardest climbs we'll face in this whole race. If you're even a little bit off, Tade is going to find it. You know, it's like water finding a gap. Like he's going to find that pressure point and get in there. I just don't see anyone else being able to realistically challenge. Because as I say on that men finish, it's just, it was a clear gulf between those two and the rest of the riders. You know, Vinegard used to work in a fish factory and maybe, you know, maybe he's just a really stoic style of leader, but the language that he continues to use in his communications with press concerns me. Yes, he hit the ground hard. I agree with you, Spencer. While we didn't see road rash, I'm sure that there's bruising and that bruising is going to take energy to heal. It's probably uncomfortable on the bike but it's every time he's asked about something negative that happens in the race he has like quite a negative perspective on it yesterday he said it was quite a bad day for us and yes a lot of bad things happen but if you contrast that with Tade when he's interviewed I mean the world's his oyster he always is incredibly optimistic or at least he's projecting confidence and it seems genuine. I I really believe that he thinks he still has the ability to win the tour and whatever it's going to take, whatever arises, he's going to keep going after that. Just with Vinegard, it's just a really different vibe that's coming through in his language. So that's a big part of why my, and I agree with you mathematically or just taking a look at the remaining stages and, where is this going to happen? How is the lead going to change hands? I don't know. Just his language is telling me he's not as strong as he needs to be to win the tour. He's def- he's always been a negative Nancy, though. Like last year, he was 
you know, I would even say even more negative. I don't know if you remember, Yumbo had this weird strategy of he was sitting in second overall and they would leave him alone in the peloton. They would send everyone up the road to chase stage wins and he would be there by himself. And after the stage, he'd be like, yeah, I don't know why we're doing this. This is like really risky. I was uncomfortable all day. I'm really scared. I might crash. There might not be anyone there to help me. And he kind of looked bewildered. That That's how I would describe his third week last year, just looking incredibly bewildered. And he rode amazing. <laughs> I was couldn't have been better on a bike in that final week last year. So there does seem to be a there can be a dissonance between his language. I don't know if that's like soothing for him, if that's just the way he calms himself down, being so negative. But we've seen him be pretty negative his entire career, and it hasn't totally affected him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe you're right. I don't know. I just, it doesn't, uh, it's not a projection of confidence to me. And another thing that I'd love to hear your take on Spencer, we of course know that Yumbo entered this race as many of the other teams did with the dual leader. will let the road decide strategy. So they came in, into the race with Roglic and Vinyagard, both potential leaders of the team for the GC and Roglic, of course, had the separated shoulder, incredibly painful, and he's left the race. I think about some of the performances we've seen from riders in the past to stay in the race no matter what. And do you think that it was an error to enter the race with two leaders from this point of view? Because if there were more on the line for Roglic, with staying in the race, would he have hung around or does it make sense that he actually departed? Well, I guess if they just came with Roglic, they don't win the race because he was just physically not after that crash, he was physically not capable. And we saw him get dropped on some hard starts the last few days. I mean, he was in the Grubetto immediately on stage. What was that stage 14 where he was off the back. So it's good. They didn't come with him. I'm, I'm a fan of, I guess, having two vague leaders just for this exact scenario. If one crashes, you have another one to, I mean, if they win the race with Jonas and he didn't even come into the race as their A leader, that's pretty impressive on their part. I, I do think we've seen it not work with Ineos recently where, you know, we saw it almost bite them in the behind in both 2018 and 2019 where, you know, Thomas won in 18, but if you remember what was the first summit finish of that tour where he's in a group, Froome is bridging up to him and he's looking back saying, oh crap, Froome's coming. I have to attack this group before Froome gets here because I can't attack my teammate once he's here and he attacks. It all worked out. He wins the race, but that's just a really weird vibe that you're incentivizing riders to race potentially against their own and the team's interest to avoid having to attack their own teammate. Same thing in 2019 where Bernal was clearly stronger, but the team was racing for Thomas. You can like feather it too much so that you end up, if you're just racing for the strongest rider every day, I call it like the quilt strategy where you're not piecing together the best single performance over the course of 21 days. You're just chasing the best performance every day from a different rider. And a lot of times you'll end up with a second and third or a third and fourth. Um, it can be very risky. I think I think Yumbo was just lucky basically that Roglic crashed so early. You know, the, the decision was made for them on stage five. So in this case, it worked out perfectly for them. It, it, it can generally not be a great strategy though. 
and much is being made of the departure now in the press and on social media. Should he have stayed in the race? I mean, if he's injured, no, right? Didn't I just mention Tebow Pino, how he lost two years of his career because his director was like, you got to finish this tour because it's the tour and he had a bad back. And then it kind of, you know, he had lasting health problems because of that. You know, if someone's saying that Roglic should have stayed in this race, I'd suggest they go dislocate their shoulder and then try to race every day in the hardest race for 21 days. I mean, it just seems like if he's hurt, he's hurt. You can't really disagree with him. I do think it gets a little dicey when you think, so the Vuelta is what, four weeks away and he wants to win the Vuelta. You know, you just see incentives are misaligned potentially between him and the team where if he wants to win the Vuelta, the best thing to do is probably just go recover and not be in this race. Maybe the team would rather have him give everything, but this is also, this is a common friction between athlete and team. Um, the team always wants you to do what's best for them, not what's best for your health. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I, I would always advocate for a rider to, if you're worried about lasting health problems, just leave the race. You know, I guess maybe a doctor would say maybe there's no lasting health issues with Roglic's shoulder and he just should have toughed it out. It's hard to know, I guess, since we're not him. You could argue, I think a good argument would be how useful would he have been? If he's getting dropped in every hard start because he can't yank on the bars, that seems like a problem. Like, what use is he to you just hanging off the back? Like, would he have even have finished yesterday's stage? What if he crashed in yesterday's stage on the same shoulder? That seems highly unappealing. So I can't really fault him. What about you? I always support writers making decisions that protect their health. I'm on the same page. And uh, I was having a bit of back and forth with somebody on Twitter the other day who had shared the rugby union's concussion protocols. And, you know, it's a similar thing in pro cycling. There are concussion protocols in place. And like you, Spencer, and everyone listening to this, how many times have you seen a cl very clearly concussed rider on the side of the road, very disoriented, perhaps they can't even locate their bike or they try to stand up and fall over and they're, they just get back on the bike and they continue to ride. And that's, again, that's a judgment that takes place between the team and the rider in the moment. There is a protocol. They do go through some questions and, you know, if you know anything about TBI and head injuries, I just, I'm highly skeptical that decisions are being made that are protecting riders from themselves because almost universally athletes are going to want to get back in the game. Cyclists want to get back on the bike. They want to ride and particularly in grand tours when so much is at stake, their future contracts, they're highly incentivized just to ignore whatever's going on from an injury point of view and continue forward. So I have deep admiration for Roglic. I know we've joked quite a bit or I probably personally have about his propensity to hit the ground in races but he's I mean he's a champion the guy always goes forward I like that he has made this decision to protect his health and that he's already thinking about his next victory I think that's the mindset of a champion and I think that it's the correct decision well, we should like make no mistake about this. Jonas is in the yellow jersey because of him, because his attacks before the Galibier on right. stage. Um, what stage was that? 10? Let me look. No. Stage 11, 
if he's not attacking Tade like that, Tade doesn't freak out. Tade's set pace on the Glibier to keep Ruglitch from to keep him from continuing to attack. He didn't eat, he didn't drink because of that. He's really tired. He gets to the Granone and cracks. You know, that doesn't happen if Roglic isn't willing to throw away his own GC position. I mean, for example, could you imagine Mika Landa doing that? I I don't think I don't think many riders would do that. So they owe him the yellow jersey at this point. And yeah, they, they should I don't think they have any standing to really criticize him for leaving. I mean, I got in the crosshairs of EF a few years ago, and I don't know if you remember, Lawson Craddock crashed really hard. And yeah. physic- he visibly had a brain or a head injury. He was bleeding from his head. Yeah. And they turned it into like a huge marketing thing where like, this guy's all messed up, but he's finishing the race and he probably has a concussion. And it's like, well, what are the ethics of this? Like, shouldn't you be encouraging him to leave if he's too injured to compete and this is doing damage to him? And he's not been the same rider since then. You know, he was a very, he was like a world-class engine at a certain point in his career. And now he's a journeyman. I don't know if it has, you know, who knows why that is. I've heard his training was also maybe not tailored incredibly well. And it, it fried his engine, so to speak. But they were, you know, not only were they not doing concussion tests on him, they were glorifying how hurt he was. And then obviously the most scary version of this is uh, Tom Squeens. I don't know if you, I watched this live, the tour of California crash where yeah, he got up. Yeah. It was terrifying. And there was a Peloton coming behind him on a descent. And he was just, he had no idea where he was. He was the most concussed person I'd ever seen in my life. Just like wandering around on the course, almost got hit by the Peloton and then got back on his bike. And then he kept running into the curb because he was so concussed. And no one could really, there's not really a protocol to help. It gets a little tricky when you think you're moving so fast to make, if you pull some out of a race and they're not concussed, you cost them the race. To perform a check would cost them the race because the peloton's gone. But it seems like there's definitely room to improve, especially with the squeens. And there was a Chris Horner incident where he went into a ditch and didn't know his name and stuff, and they let him back on the bike. That's probably a pretty obvious symptom of a concussion and you shouldn't let someone race well wout's description of his crash i forget which stage it was on where when he got up from the crash he then almost ran into the back of the team car which debatable whether that had to do with his potentially um the consequences of the crash he had just had versus that car hitting the brakes but you know wout's description of how he felt following the crash sounded to me like someone who was concussed. I mean, it sounded like he really rung his bell and he more or less said that. And if you talk to, you know, in particular, former NFL players or mixed martial arts fighters who fought in the UFC or pride or other promotions, and I've spent time with a lot of people who fall into those categories, they'll tell you that, yeah, they just like in practice or in competition, they've played through having been concussed and then the consequences of that down the line can be very serious, obviously. And I think we're also highlighting here the dichotomy between high performance and health, which often do not intersect. I think that if you're a casual observer of professional cycling in particular, because it is an endurance sport, it doesn't seem like a contact sport, but professional cyclists, like hit the ground wreck and are injured more frequently than athletes in many other sports where you might think there would be a higher injury rate. 
And that's just part of the game. And there are no labor protections in professional cycling. There is no union. There is no collective bargaining. So it's that's why we see some of this behavior, I think. Well, I mean, even just if, if you don't crash, the tour is not good for you. Getting through the Tour de France yeah. without crashing is bad for your body. I mean, if there was like, if they really wanted to be healthy, these would be 15 minute races every day <laughs> with five rest days each week. And that's just a 15 minute crit on Saturday and Sunday. I mean, this is an unhealthy event. Make no mistake about it. Your body is worth worse off for completing it. It's just kind of this weird friction between you know how do you keep yeah i yeah it's just this is an unhealthy sport that's not good for you and then it does see i mean there's definitely room to improve especially with brain injuries you shouldn't and the wild thing shows how tricky it is though what if he doesn't pass a test and then he misses out on all this great personal success and then the team misses out on his health that would be the pushback probably from the teams that like well we don't want some doc telling i some quack telling our rider he can't race and then we miss out on wins. And then the riders would say, well, that's going to hurt our careers because I could have won a stage in that tour that I was pulled out of. And now I'm out of a job because I didn't have the stage wins to get a new contract. So it gets complicated really fast. Yeah, it does get complicated really fast. We could probably do an entire series on this. I'm just going to quote Garrett Thomas here who said, I am not looking behind. I am still looking forward. And as you look forward, Spencer, question I have for you, let's say that we go into the final, let's say that there's no big drama in the next couple of stages, which, which is possible. I, we have to prepare I, for Yeah, this. it is possible. It could, could get boring. I don't think that's when, what's going to happen, but let's temporarily suspend our disbelief and say that it, we go into the final time trial GC picture looks close to what we have right now. Is there any chance that Tade could claw back two minutes and 20 seconds in that time trial? It's unlikely. Um, especially since Jonas is probably as good of a time trialist as him. Um, I guess I could, you could cite the Lance Armstrong one that I just brought up earlier in 2003 where he completely fell apart and was dehydrated. I think he lost actually about that amount of time to Ulrich. So, yeah, it is possible. Um, usually that would have to happen via a meltdown or a mistake from Vindegaard's point of view. But it's, it's certainly not impossible. What, what would be ultimately hilarious to me is if Thomas passes Pogacar, he makes up the 20 seconds in that time trial, gets second, and then Pogacar had all these opportunities to put time into Thomas and didn't take them because he just kind of doesn't even seem to acknowledge his existence. That would be pretty funny. Yeah, and that goes back to Tade's champion mentality. I think he's he's racing for the win, and he does not care. Yeah, about yeah, second or third, doesn't care. We're lucky to have that. It's kind of with Wout. Um, yeah, it doesn't want to sound like I don't want to sound like we're shaming Wout because we're all luckier that he races like this. Same with with, with Tade. Like the fact that he doesn't care about anything but winning is those of us who lived through the mid two thousand tens should like this should really be in our hearts because we watched a lot of riders race for second and third places at those tours and they were borderline unwatchable because of it. So we should be very grateful of this. One thing I wanted to ask you before we go is we saw yesterday was ostensibly a sprint stage. A lot of the sports best sprinters did not make it to the finish because the stage was too hard. They couldn't get over the climbs on course. There's really only been two stages where like the 
the big, big pure sprinters could make it to the line. Do you like this? Um, would your advice just to be go on a diet, get better at climbing? Um, or like, is this kind of sad that like, like a Mark Cavendish type probably, if Cavendish is here, he probably has two contested sprints so far and he's been dropped every other day. Yeah. You know, Cavendish, really spectacular writer in uh, the 2021 tour. And yeah, you just wonder like, what if Quickstep had made that mistake of putting him on the roster and brought him to this race? And that was, a, I mean, this is probably why exactly why he's not yeah, on that roster. Yeah, yeah, it's why he's not on that roster. And then, yeah, it would have been a really different story. Yeah, I, you know, I, I've i mentioned this. But I've been following Caleb Ewan's Instagram. It has really uh, great behind the scenes comments from him just like on the bus and like, wow, he just looks he looks so gassed. He's obviously had a lot of ground time um, during the tour is recovering from that. But I mean, he makes the point. I'm going to forget which stage it was on, but he was looking at the the course and I think it was yesterday. Correct me if I'm wrong, Spencer, but he said, hey, this stage has 3,500 meters of climbing. That's actually only a thousand meters less than the Alpe d'Huez <laughs> stage. And it's just all, you know, I live in really rolling terrain and all I'm doing every time I go on a bike ride is I'm climbing a really steep hill or I'm going down one with maybe a little bit of flat in there. It's, um, if you don't live in an area like that, if you live in Colorado or California, for example, you're typically doing those long climbs and then you have a, a long descent and then probably some flats. It's a really different style of riding. And yeah, for somebody who's a fast twitch athlete, it's exhausting just to try to hang on to that all day. I personally, you know, disappointing, I guess, not to see the world's best sprinters mix it up and I love it. Like, I just love that there's no predictability and that we're just seeing these races be animated and exciting to watch in a way I've kind of never seen before, you know, and different text threads I have with friends who are watching the race. You know, the question is always, when should I start watching the race? And <laughs> from the gun. it's like, yeah, well, I, I mean, yeah, you should watch the whole race because, you know, if you could spare that amount of time in a day. It, it's just like trying to watch the break form and looking at what's going on with people getting shelled and just hanging on for dear life early on in the first 40 or 50 K that's some of the most exciting racing to watch. And it's unfolding in a totally chaotic manner, which is making for awesome TV viewing. I love it. How about you, Spencer? Yeah, no, I totally agree. And like for reference, Mark Cavendish won yesterday's stage last year, the same stage almost Poor, unimaginable. He, he gets dropped yesterday for sure. I guess it, yeah, it is a little sad, but it shows you why we have why it makes the sprint stages more special now. Like stages two and three, you could say were boring, but you now you look back and you say, well, we might only get two or three or four of those max at this year's tour. Like Paris will be a sprint stage. Um, I've often not liked the final stage not being a GC day, but with these dwindling pure sprint stages, it makes it more special. I, I actually like it a, a, a lot, and then. Stage 19 could be disappointing. You're just like, well, we're in the middle of these GC stages and then we have a sprint stage, but it adds it adds more excitement to the sprint stages now. So I'm a big fan and it, and it makes it, you know, harder to be a sprinter. Like he, now they have to fight through the Pyrenees just to get another chance to sprint as opposed to, to jetting out like you would at the Giro perhaps after a few stages of sprinting. 
Yeah, I know you need to slide, Spencer, and we're not going to have a chance to look backward on a future episode, but that Michael Matthews stage win, wow, looking at his body, that is that dude is thick. He is a muscular guy. I was like, how is he doing this? I didn't see that. I'll be late from NX podcast just to talk about this for a second. He, that was incredible. I didn't know he had that climbing in him, but I will say if you, this is going to sound creepy, the dude's got a dump truck. He's got the biggest butt I've ever seen on a cyclist. And that helps on the climb, like exactly like that, because he could just stay seated and generate power from those glutes versus Betty all who's, you know, kind of like how I would probably ride that climb surging. You think you're at the top, you're anaerobic. And Matthews just sat, it sat down and just kind of grinded basically from his butt that power and then eventually overtook Betty also. I, I was shocked. I didn't think he had it in him, but the thickness did help him a bit on that climb. Were you able to read his neck tattoo? No, he has many tattoos that I'm often trying to read. What is the neck okay. tattoo? Did you see it? I, I don't know. If anybody knows the answer, and maybe we can wrap it up here, what does the tattoo on the right side of Michael Matthews neck say? If you know the answer, hit Spencer and uh, Spencer me up on Twitter, at BTP Cycling, at Vons, at Hardway Pod. That was a hell of a ride. I mean... I really enjoyed watching that victory. And now I want to know what does the neck tattoo say? Forget the bling. We want the answer. Yeah. <laughs> and that shows like the beauty of the tour where you have these like set GC set pieces. And then in the middle of it, these subplots that are just incredible, like seeing a guy who used to be a sprinter turn into being like, well, I can't win sprints anymore. So I'll just win this really, really hard stage. You know, I thought it was a beautiful thing to watch. Didn't see that one coming. All right, well, I'll let you go, Andrew, and please hit, up, hit us up on Twitter if you want to talk to us. It's always fun to get comments and questions. Andrew, I'll talk to you after Wednesday's stage. Yeah, talk to you then, Spencer. All right, bye. Stay cool. Stay cool.